Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode one of Beyond the Bars. I am so thankful that you have taken the time to listen to this podcast, and I am so excited for today's episode. I got the opportunity to interview my longtime friend and previous coworker, Roy McGrath. Roy grew up in the Salem, Oregon area throughout his childhood. He was raised by a blue-collar family. He served in the United States Air Force for 11 years and then had a 26-year career working for the Oregon Department of Corrections. He's worked at three different institutions, and he promoted up through the ranks from officer to lieutenant, at which point he was subsequently forced into retirement due to not taking the COVID vaccine that was mandated by the governor of Oregon. Now, before you break away from this and stop listening due to political ideals or ideations, I want you to know that the reason why this is important is this is the overall conversation in which we had on this podcast speaking about morals, code of ethics, and code of conduct personally held by each as an individual, which is something that is severely lacking in today's society. Most people don't want to stand up for what they believe in. Most people don't want to cause wakes. Most people want to just sit back and not really have to deal with any of their issues and just want to go under the bridge as peacefully as possible. Roy really embodies that standing of code of ethics, code of conduct, and a moral compass. And we discussed that and how it, that he was raised and how that was ingrained and embedded into his thought process for the rest of his life leading up to the point in which he left the Oregon Department of Corrections. And this is a wonderful podcast. We really delve into how to encourage men and women to stand up for their beliefs and do it in the appropriate ways and not just standing up for any old ideal, but really standing up for what you believe in. And like I said, how to do that in the appropriate ways, not by rioting or looting or anything else, but just really standing up and going through the system. Thank you so much for joining me once again. I hope you get something out of this. Please comment, like, subscribe on whatever platform that you are listening to this on. And if you want to get in touch with us, leave a comment and we will get back to you. Thank you so very much. Have a wonderful day. And without further ado, episode one of Beyond the Bars. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode zero one of Beyond the Bars. I'm your host, Spencer, and I am joined by my guest today, Roy McGrath. Hello, Roy. How are you? I'm good, Spence. What's going on? Oh, not much. Just another wonderful day in Oregon. Um, all right, so we're going to be interviewing uh, Roy today. He's got a pretty extensive history in Department of Corrections, so we're going to get a brief uh, just kind of snapshot of your childhood and your uh, young adult life and what led you into corrections, and then just a, a real brief snapshot of corrections because you had, what, 29 years total? I had 26. 26, okay, yeah. so... Uh, 26 years total, uh, so that's a lot of history to cover in, in one episode. Um, down the road, we might come back and maybe dissect that a little bit more. Um, but for today, I want to get, like I said, that, that snapshot of your, your childhood growing up and then um, kind of go into some 
current events of today and where men are at today and um, some things that men are doing well today and some things men aren't doing so well with today. So um, why don't you start with your childhood? Where'd you grow up? Uh, primarily grew up in, in Salem. Went to Auburn Elementary, Parish Middle School, graduated from North Salem. Uh, when I was growing up, I had older parents. Uh, my dad, this was his uh, second family, and my mother just had children late in the years. And But it was a... We are American mutts, me and my sisters. I've got uh, two sisters that are twins and a year younger than me. Uh, we had what I would consider a typical Salem, Oregon family uh, in the 70s. And we were the latchkey kids. Uh, both parents worked, and we spent all of our time outside. And we had, this is what boys did, this is what girls did, um, my dad was a World War II vet, uh, disabled. He only had one lung, and I didn't realize what that meant and how he had overcome that for a really long time. But because dad was a World War II vet, uh, they didn't do any uh, decompressing or retraining of, of those men back then. Mm-hmm. You came back from war, and you went to work. You raised a family. My dad had issues that affected me throughout my upbringing, but... My mom tried to make sure that we all still had a as much of a normal life as we could. There were some really serious shitty parts, mm-hmm. but mom kept trying to make sure that, that we uh, regrouped and stayed focused. And in the end, it, it mattered. My mom's still alive. She still uh, does that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, dad has passed. But growing up, it was uh, playing sports, uh, being outgoing, having a core group of friends. And to this day, I still have five friends that are alive that we, uh, still talk. Uh, we get together when we can and, uh, not a lot of time has passed. We just catch up from where, from wherever we left off. Uh, my sisters and I, uh, are still good to go. We take care of my mom. Uh, they live in the local area like I did, like I do. I live out in uh, Dallas, but, uh, we watched Saturday morning cartoons. We ate cereal. Uh, our parents smoked in the house. Mm-hmm. They drank coffee all the time. <laughs> they drank. Uh, they cussed. Uh, but we went to church on Sundays. Mm-hmm. We celebrated Fourth of July, and we were very proud Americans. Uh, we learned to stand up for the flag, say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Uh, my dad was from the South and had a very uh, solid upbringing about manners from the South. My mom grew up in a family, a large family of uh, 19. And there was a a hierarchy there because she was half Italian and half Mexican. Both of her parents were from the old country. And so there was this, this is how women do things. This is how men do things. And that that whole mentality of it doesn't matter what you are, uh, black, Mexican, white, we treat each other the same. I learned that from my dad. My dad is uh, was an, an Irish Englishman. He was uh, white and red-headed with freckles. Mm-hmm. My mother is uh, dark-skinned, uh, black hair. And what came out of it is me. He is a dark-skinned, uh, last, you know, Irish last name. 
but it didn't matter. You learn to be respectful to people. You learn to be proud and support America. And what men need to do, my dad taught me. What women need to do and be like, my mom taught me. And more on my mom's side, she taught me how she supported my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad didn't do such a great job in how to support mom. Okay. Other than he did go to work at different jobs in shitty conditions because he was a roofer by trade. And uh, so he taught me work ethics, which is you work and you do a quality job from sun up to whenever you get the job done. It, it, the, it didn't matter what the contract said. His, the work he did was on a handshake. Mm-hmm. He said, I'll do this for you. <clears throat> you pay me this when I'm done. And he, the funny thing I learned about my dad was he never uh, graduated grade school, let alone high school. Oh, wow. Uh, because in Oklahoma during the Depression, they needed all the hands on the, uh, on the farm. Right, you know, right. and back in Oklahoma. And then he went in <clears throat> to the uh, World War II at the age of 16, lied about being 17, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and went and got blown up. At the age of 52, he graduated from Chemeketa with a high school degree. Wow. Uh, because it mattered, mm-hmm. you know. It mattered to him. It was one thing he wanted to be able to do. My dad was awesome at math. He could He could do square roots the whole nine yards, because he had to learn it for roofing and construction. Right. right. <clears throat> and he was intelligent. So he it was wasn't almost, stupid. It was almost like he got the on the job training growing up, working the trades, and then was able to, you know, complete the get the actual degree from Shemekita, but he already knew how to do the, the work or <clears throat> that's part of it. And then one day we were looking at what uh he had an old article about the schoolwork he had to do as a grade schooler. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that from, from decades past? No. The kids, my dad, my mom, they were doing highly more complicated math, history, uh, that high school seniors would have a hard time with now really? in, in the third grade. Yeah, they were very demanding and kids had to pay attention and they had to learn a lot, you know. And so it was, uh, it was interesting to see that and go, wow, because my dad was able to help me with my uh, schoolwork all the way mm-hmm. through school. Mm-hmm. It, and uh, there were times when my mom couldn't, and she was intelligent, yeah. Yeah. and she had a high school degree, and she did a little bit of college. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. Uh, growing up, I played a lot. I had core friends, high school. Uh, the only times it was difficult was because of the other side of my dad, which was he was an alcoholic with severe PTSD from going into war and getting blown up, trying to land on a beach uh, in the South Pacific Islands. Did he ever talk about his war experience or what he went through or what he saw, dealt with? Um... Very, very little. And when war shows would come on, uh, war movies, uh, he would become somber. And I didn't realize it till later. A lot of the times he was not watching them. He really dug okay. John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really loved watching Westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was also, his passion was uh, training racehorses. 
and oh, being really? around okay. horses. Okay. He loved being outside. He loved to fish. He loved to uh, train racehorses. We had some. Uh, so for me growing up, <clears throat> uh, my sisters had to learn too, but not nearly as much as me. We got up at 5 a.m. because we had to go take care of horses. Okay. Uh, so did you guys have a little bit of property? No, we, uh, he boarded them someplace. Okay. So okay. we had different boarding facilities and then we, I would travel with him to go to races. Oh, okay. <clears throat> you know, wow. so he showed me that side of the world mm-hmm. and that's where I got to meet a whole plethora of different people. Yeah. Black people, Mexican people, rich white people, rich, uh, rich black people. And it didn't matter which one dad was talking to. He never changed his tone. He was always the same friendly guy and in interested in what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he also didn't tolerate bullshit. Yeah. There was a time where we had some, uh, nieces staying with us <clears throat> and there was, uh, a guy that had, that they had met that was kind of like a new boyfriend and there was a conflict in the back bedroom. <clears throat> Next thing I know. One of the nieces is running out screaming. She was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom yelled for my dad. My dad went down the hallway. And next comes this guy. And he's screaming, put me down. And <laughs> then the guy was gone. My dad thrown him into the van. Uh, the next day, I went with my dad to a job. And there was a set of boots <clears throat> and a bloody coat. Jeez. And it wasn't my dad's. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so okay. your dad, he wouldn't put up with with shit at all. It was, no, he was addressed direct. Yeah, okay. I I think that this guy had attempted to rape one of my one of my nieces, mm-hmm. and my dad he he left the house. Yeah, dad never talked about it. Yeah, it was the same thing with the war. He only ever said because I was uh, <clears throat> I was trying to make war seem really cool and mm-hmm. what I wanted to go do and this, that, and he goes, and just in a quiet matter tone went, never wish for war. Mm-hmm. It's the last thing you ever want to do. It is horrible. You watch people that you come close to get blown up and you're looking at their body parts and you're screaming for help. And then you get blown up. And then you're screaming for help. It is horrific. At, at what age did you start um, kind of formulating in your head? You know, you wanted to go to war, um, wanted to join the military. Like, what what age was that? Ah, man, we started watching all those all those old TV shows and movies. So probably around five or six is when all that you start playing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and doesn't matter if it's aliens or if it's cowboys and Indians, mm-hmm. uh, that, that was cool. Yeah. You know, we, we dressed up our bikes and then we would have our different teams and it went up, it went up until you, you know, you got into junior high and you're playing football mm-hmm. and who are you playing? Well, the, the cowboys versus the Redskins. Yeah. Oh geez. That's, that's not a <laughs> continued theme. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but then I went into high school and played a bunch of sports, found girls, what was your favorite sport to play? Uh, football. Love football. football. Uh, okay. Team sport. Yeah. And becoming part of that was really, really good. I, I enjoyed wrestling because mm-hmm. uh, you test yourself. And it is a team. But in the end, it's an individual sport. Yeah. 
but yeah, by far, uh, football was my favorite. Okay. Um, had rugby been around, I probably would have uh, dug that rugby. Yeah, you know, yeah. but it wasn't a popular high school thing then. Right, right. Um, was uh, so you, you mentioned girls. Did that distract you from sports or your friends group or? Like, yeah, absolutely. How did, how did those dynamics work out? Yeah, it 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 distracted me a lot. Uh, I, I fell in love with being being with with girls, uh, you know, and it influenced me a lot in decision making. Um, and yeah, yeah, and, and it does. It's still to this day does for a lot of of young American boys. Yes. So, um, so then your friends group. Did you? play sports with all these friends were they all on the same team like you guys attend school together how was that uh the core group we almost all of us played one sport or another together but there is one friend no we didn't play any sports together okay uh but they were in the same clique okay so we were able to hang out and to this day that's still still the way i'm majority of friends that i can count on one hand that i still do stuff with monthly or at least yearly mm-hmm. uh i have uh, deep connections with from something else that makes sense that makes yeah. sense um so as you're as you're growing up um you know it sounds like community was a really big thing for you um interacting with your friends your family um you know it, it seemed like you're pretty you know tight-knit with your family and friends so um is that something that was driven by your parents or um, was that just something you naturally gravitated towards or what do you, Uh, I'm an extrovert. Um, My sisters for the most part are extroverts. My mom and dad were, were extroverts Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't use that term lightly. I, I, my wife is an introvert, an Mm -hmm. extreme introvert. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I've had to learn a ton about the differences and what draws us to each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my my mom and dad were, uh, they enjoyed other people's company, that they had things in common with, that had similar uh, morals and ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and overall, they just need, they hung out with people that treated them the way that my folks would also. Right. You're good. We can hang out. We laugh. We don't shit, take shit too seriously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're not perfect. That's what I, a lot of what I learned was, it's okay. Ain't none of you perfect. And you're going to need to forgive each other. Well, I also learned that family's family <clears throat> and you always defend them. Mm-hmm. But behind the doors, you can tell people you are a complete screwed up unit and you will never come back to this house again. Yeah. I'll never give you any money. Yeah. I ain't in your corner. I'm basically going to disown your ass, but if you still got the same last name, we're here. And if you ever get your shit together, you can come back. That makes sense. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving forward to, towards like high school. So, um, you're playing sports, hanging out with girls. Um, sounds pretty stereotypical guy, dude stuff. Yeah. Um, as you're getting ready to graduate high school, what is your, like, what are you planning on doing? Like, where, what are your goals? What are your thoughts? Like, where, where are you trying to end up at? I was a screwed up unit. 
Um, we had some family dynamics where my dad, the alcoholism, uh, and the anger had taken over and, uh, he was not living at home. He was, uh, traveling around, losing money. He had a, a gambling addiction. turns out I do too. So I stay away from casinos and gambling and I have a really shitty attitude. So I know where that comes from, but, uh, I had put on a bunch of weight to play football at the beginning of uh, senior year and just love to eat. Okay. Uh, and I got up to 265 pounds. I didn't have any plan. All I wanted to do was hang out with my girlfriend who became my, my first wife. And my parents tried as they might to try to get me to focus on what to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I just wandered and did crappy jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, uh, became depressed and isolated, uh, from a lot of my friends because I was just hanging out with my girlfriend all the time. Yeah. And her parents were like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. Right. And finally my, uh, I graduated high school and was a flunky for about three or four months. And my parents came to me and said, you either move out, uh, or you go in the military because quite frankly, you, you need to mm-hmm. figure shit out. So they, they're basically trying to either get, get you off on your own fly, spread your wings or, right. you know, right. So I went and talked to some recruiters and ended up, uh, deciding that the air force was for me. <clears throat> and, uh, what, yeah. what made you pick the air force? Uh, Probably the, the salesmanship from the recruiter okay, uh, was the uh, most realistic. Yeah. Uh, the, the other recruiters either didn't sound like a lot, what I wanted to do, or I could tell that they were high, high pitch, high pressure, and mm-hmm. just wasn't it. <clears throat> and uh, my dad said, I, I think the Air Force would be best for you, considering everything. And I went, oh, okay. Yeah. But I had to get down to 180 pounds. And so, you were how 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 much did you weigh at the time? Two sixty five. Two sixty five. So you had to drop some serious weight. It took That's, a year. Okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, I realized, you know, when that came, I said, "If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it." So yeah, I w- went in 180 and went into the Fat Boy Club because okay. I was right on the border. I I could only be 181. Yeah. And they yeah. said, "Oh no, son, yeah, we're gonna." So I I got down to like 170 pounds. Okay. Uh, which is the lightest I had been since uh, probably uh, freshman year. Okay. You know, because okay. I had bulked up from, from yeah. lifting weights. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I had no fucking idea what I was going to do. <laughs> None. And okay. then they helped me figure that out. And going in was one of the best decisions uh, that I did because they give you a life. You just have to learn how to live in it and make it your own, right. which is right. what I eventually did. So what did you do in the Air Force? What was your job? Uh, 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 security specialist. Okay. So uh, the Air Force police, uh, my specialty was working the security side. So we did aircraft and munitions protection mm-hmm. along with uh, base protection. And then there were the street style police that were there. Um, and it just so happened that my uh, training section was the first one to have a female uh, security come okay. through. So we had the whole uh, Kardashian yeah. uh, video crews and, and everything there right, all the time. Right. So Get the publicity out there. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So okay. I know that my experience wasn't typical Yeah. because they did things a little different. Right. You know? Right. Um, yeah. But I, I'm super glad I went in. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, part of me wishes I would have stayed to to retire from there, mm-hmm. but I didn't, and I'm not going to go back and change it. Somebody mm-hmm. asked me if you could go back and what would you change? I I I couldn't because it's helped me get to here. Right. That's it. Other than be a be a solid good man. Mm-hmm. Make quality decisions. That that's it. I, there were it would help me make better decisions and not hurt people uh like I know that I've done. Right. Well yeah. we'll get down to that uh cuz you got some really uh good unique interesting insight and perspective into being a man and how to <laughs> interact in society um which i think will be really good for a lot of uh men of today to to hear and frankly women as well because women um need to hear what what the standard of a man should be and yeah. shouldn't be um so you're you're in the military how long were you in the air force 11 for? and a half years 11 and a half years so that's that's like right down the middle. I see where you say, like, if you go back, you know, retiring from there, like, that's right down the middle, man. Yeah. Um, well, the the decision, uh, it was a critical point. They said, if you, uh, we want you to, to re-up, mm-hmm. but once you do, then we're going to send you to, to the sandbox. Right. And uh, that was at the beginning of, of the first uh, time where, first wave we would go over to... Uh, uh, Iraq. And if you don't, uh, we're downsizing, uh, the air force and the military in general, Mm -hmm. and we have too many of you. So what we'll do is we'll give you $25,000 and we'll kill your contract. And then you can go be a civilian. And there are not many times when you get out of the military that they give you pay you to leave. Right. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And at the time my daughter was two years old. Okay. Uh, My daughter, Chloe, I, I would move heaven and earth for that, for that girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, To this day, I would still move heaven and earth for her and that I could spend more time with her and go back with my family was a uh, absolute easy decision. Where were you living at the time? Where were you stationed? We were uh, stationed at a a joint base in San Diego. Okay. And uh, so it was, you're going to take me away from my daughter Mm -hmm. for 18 months yeah, and I won't see her when she is just damn adorable yeah. and yeah. fabulous yeah. or I can spend more time with her. That's really tough. And, and yeah. here's a check for you to leave too. Right. Like see right. you later. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So then I thought, what am I going to do? Well, I was doing security and I felt that that was a quality purpose. That mm-hmm. was a, that was a good way of living being an American, serving in the military, doing security, trying to protect our assets. And for me, it flowed right into, I, I want to be a police officer. I mm-hmm. knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, all right. So I started applying uh, for different jobs. Were you applying in the San Diego area or had you guys relocated? No, we, we wanted to come home. Okay. We wanted to see all okay. of our family be here. So I applied for the state police, Salem PD, Marion County. Uh, and they were hiring, but... Uh, there were so many people applying that were getting out of the military and other jobs, they could cherry pick. Yeah. And at the time, I think they had new uh, new unwritten requirements where they wanted to have four-year degree people. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get a job. But my sister, uh, Roxy, worked for Department of Corrections uh, in Human Resources and said, we're hiring, mm-hmm. and we don't have that requirement. So I applied, um, and I got a job interview at the pen 
and then at OSCI, and OSCI offered first. So for, for those of you who might not know, so the, the pen or the penitentiary is referring to the Oregon State Penitentiary. Yep. Um, a lot of times we shorten it up and just say the pen or OSP. So and in the corrections world, OSP is the Oregon State Penitentiary. So Yeah, and OSCI is short, <clears throat> you know, rightly so, for Oregon State Correctional Institution, <laughs> which is a freaking mouthful. Yes. And yes. Uh, co-located in, in Salem. Yeah. At the time, there were five different uh, prison institutions and, uh, they offered first mm-hmm. and I went there and I was the first new hire in like a, a year and a half Jeez. and, uh, fell right into it. Uh, and they brought me on just like when I left the military, there was a core group of senior sergeants. These guys were in their late fifties or, and in their sixties. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, uh, going to work for a colonel or your dad, yeah. and this is how you do things. Yeah. This is what you don't do. Um, this is just a job, but we treat each other well, and if you're here long enough, you'll, you'll make some friends. So what, what year is this? Uh, this was uh, 1995. Okay. May. So the, the reason why I want to bring that up is one of the big things for those, again, who, who might not know corrections mentality or the 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 prison world um oftentimes you have the the old school corrections guys who are very closed off to new people coming in and um it's it's interesting when you start in that business the the trainers will always tell you like you will end up this way down the road. We don't want you to, but we know you're going to end up that way. And it's, it's an interesting mentality because, um, that was kind of the same thing that, that I had when I started with, with DOC was, it was like, I had a core group of individuals that kind of took me under their wing and were like, here, we're going to show you for no rhyme or reason. They just like your personalities match up or they, they see something, whatever, whatever it is, they just kind of click up and, and start training you. But that old school mentality is, is very different than the modern day corrections. Um, but it's just, it's, it's interesting. And I'm assuming it probably had a lot to do with your personality type of being an extrovert where, you know, I'm here, you're going to like me whether, you know, you want to or not. Um, you know, and, and I can see that being something that, you know, they grasp onto very well. Um, how many people did you start with? Was it just you, or did you have more people that started at the same time? It, it was just me. And then uh, I think it was about a month later, there was there were two more. Okay. Um, and then eventually, I think there were five of us that went to the academy together. Okay. Um, but at the time, the institution had just come out of uh, a couple years earlier of wearing civvy clothes and had gone back to uniforms. Okay. And had gotten radios. So, so the staff yeah. were wearing civvy clothes. Yeah. And then they switched from that to being in uniforms. You're, again. you're wearing uniforms. Right. Okay. And carrying radios. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, there was a whole plethora of different things. <laughs> and but what what the difference was is lawsuits. Back then there weren't nearly as many lawsuits. Okay. And you could, as a corrections officer, primarily men. Uh, <clears throat> you could say things and do things to get extremely difficult uh, criminals 
to comply and do what you wanted them to do. Now, I'm not saying you got to beat people to death to get them to do, mm-hmm. but when you can stand toe to toe with a convicted murderer and say, I'm just as strong a man as you, mm-hmm. and I'm willing mm-hmm. through my convictions, not just a job, but my moral and ethical standards, say, I'm going to stand here until you understand this is the standard. Yeah. And you need, you need to do what I'm telling you. Yeah. And it's not just a piece of paper or a binder. It was their core. And they could stand there and look at somebody, and then that person would go, all right, fine, man, I'll go do it. Yeah. You know, and that's what I witnessed the majority of the time. Hardly ever did I see what we call wall-to-wall counseling. Did it occur uh, occasionally? Yes. Because do you want to explain what wall-to-wall counseling yeah. would be? Yeah. Wall-to-wall counseling is a term in the military and outside where no amount of talking will influence a person to do what they should do or stop doing what they should do. So you need to physically... Uh, uh, some people would say assault, you know, we say fight. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and it was always mutual, uh, that no amount of talk is going to solve this issue and that there's a beef that needs to get handled physically. Mm-hmm. Um, in the military, they would put you in to a ring, a pit, uh, or just go out back in a field and you two settle this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there needs to be done. Now, the difference is when you're done, there's an understanding. Right. This issue is right. squashed, and we move on from here. It, my friends and I would have wall-to-wall counseling. Right. We would have disputes and have to fight it out. But we had each other's back, and we respected each other because we were willing to go to that level for our beliefs or whatever, whatever the issue was. Right. So in corrections, it's not appropriate they say, but instead we get a group of people to go in and do the same thing. So, instead of one-on-one, <laughs> we're now going to put six, six people in there yes. with pepper spray and a yes. taser yes. to do the job that in the end you need to run a, a block of 100, 200, 400, 500 people, mm-hmm. and they need to respect you and yeah. try to realize that your convictions are solid and they should do what what you want them to. Right. There is a solid ground still at times for wall to wall counseling. Yep. I completely agree. And I think, uh, as tying back in with the lawsuits, like you said, and the day and age that we've moved into, and I think we'll discuss this more, uh, as we get into like this, this day and age, but, the mentality shifted from, like you said, of, you know, the wall-to-wall counseling, like, we're going to have a fight, and whoever comes out, comes out, and whoever doesn't, you know, whoever loses, loses, and you put it to the side, and you drop it. Um, that mentality has shifted, and I think that a lot of that comes from just people becoming petty and being like, well, no, I want to get, you know, I want to be right, so now I'm going to follow up with, you know, a complaint or a lawsuit or whatever it is, but... It's just an interesting shift in generations that we've gotten away from that. It's it's no longer, you know, you acceptable to have a, a fight on the playground at school. Now you have to go, you know, tell that person like, Hey, don't don't I don't like that you do that and then if they don't, you know, 
continue to do it, then you go tell the teacher, hey, teacher, you know, so it's, it's, it's almost, I, I understand the idea behind not allowing fights to happen, but by the same hand, especially with men, you sometimes just need to go to blows to figure out you're not top dog in whatever area you're, you're pushing, um, and it's, it's, sometimes you just need that physical aggression, so. Well, schools, uh, I've got grandkids in schools, and I'm scared shitless for them, but I plan on taking an active role in uh, participating in going and watching the curriculum at grade school, kindergarten, to be honest. But uh, when they came out with the hands are not for hurting, that changed the dynamics for uh, to the current times. It meant everybody became a, a victim of one kind or another because that statement needed to be complete. It wasn't. The statement needs to be, hands are not for hurting. They are for protecting yourself, mm-hmm. your family, your community, and your country. We need to know when that time is and how to use those hands and why right. we need to have the guidance because you just create an entire uh, generation or two of people that are victims. Well, they hurt me. No, they're bullies and they should have been stopped. Yeah. They yeah. should have been stopped by you or the people around you or right. the people, the, the adults around you should have said, no, nah, your kid's a bully. It doesn't belong here. Yeah. You need to educate them. Yep. Uh, but, but yeah. yeah. Anyways. So you're you're starting off. You had five in your class. Um, did you, coming into corrections, did you enjoy the job? Did you enjoy the work? I did. Uh, being able to, to work with difficult, diverse group of people and having them do what I'm asking them to do, sometimes demanding, without having to point a gun at them, without mm-hmm. having to point a taser, without having to say, I'm going to beat your ass. Uh, and then learning about them. Having, I, there were, I spent more time with a lot of freaking convicts than I did my family yeah. because of the work schedule right, right. and the way things developed over 26 years. I got to learn about convicts, families, and they went through the same shit we went through. Mm-hmm. They went through divorces and deaths and their people growing up and accidents and uh, learning about themselves. Right, right. And I got, I got to have 26 years with some of these men over that time that to this day uh, will still call each other by first names if I see them. Yeah. I don't have any relationships with any of them now, right? Uh, except maybe on social media where they've reached out to me because they heard about what happened at the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And without asking, I've had every gambit of, of male convict reach out and say, sorry about that. You were a solid dude to me and everybody else inside. Yeah. Which was, which was interesting. Well, we'll get to that portion cause that's a big key of, um, you know, standing on your morals and not 
backing down. <laughs> so, yeah. so we'll get to that specifically at you know when we segue. But um, so twenty six years, uh, you worked at OSCI, um, promoted up through the ranks to sergeant at OCI, correct? Yeah, that uh, it went quick for me uh, because of the mentor group that I had. Okay. The mentor group of sergeants and corporals uh, saw something in me, and they made sure that I got the experiences necessary because they saw the leadership in me that they wanted to promote mm-hmm. because they didn't want idiots being promoted. Right. Right. Um, and these are their words and words that I use now, uh, or I did when I was working. And they also knew that at some point they were training their replacement. Right. They wanted to pick. Yeah. They wanted to make sure that the, the job was left in good hands. Um, and so in three years, I, I became sergeant. Okay. So that was fast. Yeah. 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 Actually, so, it took four years to become permanent. Three years okay. to become out of class. Four years to become permanent. Yeah, and, and again, just going back, explaining. So out of class is where there is a temporarily vacant position in which you are allowed to fill um, their stipulations around it. But just it's it's a somebody has either gone out on medical leave or they have gone into a higher position temporarily or whatever, covering somebody else, um, which creates that op, uh, opportunity for somebody else to fill that as a temporary position. Um, but I think, I don't know if it was the same back in the nineties, but I know, you know, when I was in three years was the fastest you could promote to surgeon. I don't know if it was the same thing back then, but, um, DOC now has a timeline of, you have to complete your, your probationary period, which is a year. And then you have to have, you know, a year as a corporal and then, you can at that point, um, you know, promote to sergeant. So maybe it's maybe it's two years. It's somewhere two to three years somewhere in there. I can't can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, it could be as fast as a year if you came from a another career field where you had just an exorbitant amount of experience, right? right. Um, and they saw you over the year make those decisions, and uh, uh. Usually those people did not go for sergeant because they had left that for a reason. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But they could have. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so you promoted a sergeant. Um, you, what was, did you enjoy being a sergeant? What, what it, were the pros, cons? It, for me, it was uh, at OSA. I was, it was the best job going. Um, I wasn't a manager and didn't have to worry about all the heartaches and, and bullshit that they did, but I still had a high level of influence Mm -hmm. and there was the responsibility came along with it too. Yeah. And I understood that, um, when, uh, my, my shift commanders wanted something done, they would tell me, this is what I need done get it done mm-hmm. or they would get a hold of the specific unit sergeant that needed to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And as sergeants, uh, we commanded a certain amount of respect, mm-hmm. not because of the rank. Usually it was because we were, we had already been there, done that. And they knew they could count on us because we would get it done. Right. Because we had the respect of our, of our peers, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
this is how we act. This is how we get things done. And that's how it is. It's the same in the military. Right. right. You know, if you need something done in the Navy, you get hold of a chief. Mm-hmm. All right. He's not a manager, but he's been there, done that. Yep. And you do not screw with him. Yep. Yep. Okay. And so, yeah, Sergeant was rocking. I did that uh, for about, I don't know, 18 years uh, before I decided to go for lieutenant. Significant amount of your career. Yeah. 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 So what, uh, just out of curiosity, what was it that made you jump from being a sergeant to and, and being in the union to leaving the union and promoting into a management position? It was a personal interaction with a select group, minor group, of employees, security employees at OSCI uh, that were after one thing and one thing only and manipulating, attempting to manipulate all the other staff to help them make money by uh, manipulating the system towards their favor and pitting uh, employees against management and making a hostile work environment for their personal benefit. Mm-hmm. And they use the guise of the union to do that. So you're talking of a very small group of staff. Yeah. At, uh, eight people. So you had eight people. How many security staff did you have total? So, uh, we had 162, I think. Okay. So you had eight people basically making everybody else's life miserable. Yeah, intentionally, by design. Um, if you look at politics over history, they were using the playing cards from uh, from then. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a new tactic. Right. It is uh, politics 101 being played by them at a very high level mm-hmm. uh, to manipulate solely for money, but also uh, to they enjoyed the negative side of of how they made management and DOC look. Right. So feeding uh, off the, the conflict. Yeah. And it was all negative. There wasn't yeah. any positive. Right. And right. I knew that there were good people in the management level mm-hmm. uh, that I worked for, that I had worked side by side, uh, grew up with, helped, wanted to promote, to help mm-hmm. put them into those positions so that I knew I had a good boss. Right. Um, and I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And I said, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this because it needs to get done. Right. And I'm not going to stand by anymore. So, um, so going back to your, your core set of morals that your parents raised you on of, you know, standing up for what's right and yeah. doing what's right basically came into play 18 years into your career of like, okay, this is, this is the line in the sand and I'm not going to allow this to continue any further. Absolutely. Cause there's, and I, and I think it's, it's important to differentiate, um, when it comes to DOC, you always have the people who are a hundred percent from day one. I want to promote, I want to, you know, go to the top, which is completely fine. DOC needs people like that. Any, any organization needs those go-getters that are going to come up and, you know, be aggressive and want to get those promotions. Um, as long as they are doing it the, the correct proper way. Um, but then there's also the group of people that, you know, see, okay, I'm tired of dealing with the bullshit and I'm tired of dealing with 
whatever's coming along being crammed down my throat, like you were saying in your situation. So it's, it's, there's, there's really two kinds of people that I see promote. It's, it's one or the other, and it's not really ever, there, there's not really any middle road. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. happen a lot. And there's, and you're at, at 18 years, you're essentially giving up what, 16 years of bidding seniority. So you're giving up day shift, weekends, holidays off. Um, I, I was the number two sergeant. So, which means at, at that point, you know, in, in, you know, law enforcement, LEO, corrections, first responder, it's all based off of seniority. So your time in at one rank is what gives you the availability to bid, you know, your post, um, to be able to bid what shift you're working, whether you're working day shift, swing shift or graveyard. Um, so all of that, that's a lot that is essentially you're, you're putting your entire, um, personal life on hold, family life on hold to go back to, to square one and go to back to the bottom and essentially be, um, and, and the other portion with that is moving from Sergeant to Lieutenant. You're, you're giving up all right to pick where you work at that point. It's the superintendent's office that picks what shift you're going to work, what days off you have, what post you're going to work. So you're, you're really giving up a lot personally to make that decision of no more, you know, here's my line in the sand. So all, all of that. And uh, it was a massive decision. And then when the institution that I grew up at that I loved to death didn't hire me permanently, uh, it, it was bitter. Yeah. I wanted to retire there. Yeah. I wanted to have that plaque from them uh, and be able to say, thanks, love you, you know, keep, keep carrying the rock uh, from here on out. But that didn't happen. I, I made a decision to go over to the penitentiary. I went and had a conversation with the, the then superintendent, Brandon Kelly, who I already knew from before working at OSCI, mm-hmm. and said, uh, you know, he asked me, why are you doing this? And we had the conversation, and I told him. Yeah. I said, I, I know I need to do this. Yeah. I know I need out of there because uh, I'm not going to become permanent. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to, I want to make a difference, uh, at this level. I want to prove that there are still good people here. Right. And I want to come work for you because I know there are good people here. Yeah. Uh, and I need it. And I think I, I, uh, will be able to help OSP out also. Right. And he said, okay, I'm gonna give you a shot. You're hired. So, uh, before we get into OSP, let's go ahead and take a break and then we'll, we'll come back to that. All right. All right, Roy, we are back from the break. Um, we were just getting ready to start talking about your transition from OSCI to OSP or from uh, OSCI to the pen because um, that's where anybody who's anybody who you know loves corrections in Oregon and I believe rolls up to because that's the best prison in all of Oregon. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you sat down, you got, uh, had a conversation with Brandon Kelly and he brought you over as a Lieutenant. Uh, so was that, was that, did he bring you over as a out of class Lieutenant or did he bring you over as a permanent position? Uh, permanent. Okay. So I'll let you take it from there. You come over permanent position. Um, one, one little side note. I think I remember the first day I met you and I was just like the, the disgruntled pissed off sergeant. (laughs) I was just like. 
who the fuck is this guy from OSCI? Like, how dare you come to the pen, you know? Um, luckily, uh, one of the crusty captains there was like, nah, he's cool. He's cool. And like, all right, I trust you. Like, we're yeah. good. But, well, um, coming over wasn't nearly as difficult as it would be for somebody who uh, had never uh, known any of the uh, any of the staff. So one of the things that we haven't talked about is I have uh, or had an extensive background in training, Uh, training a plethora of stuff. Primarily, if it can hurt you, I trained it. Uh, So DTs, firearms, cell extractions. So uh, DTs are defensive tactics. It's the base that uh, Department of Corrections uses to train their staff so they can have some level of self-defense because a lot of staff who come in have very little to no experience. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, because of that, I got to work with a lot of different people and I got to train all the people in the Valley. Mm -hmm. So uh, by Valley, we're talking about the Willamette Valley here in Salem where you have five prisons and the administrative staff support too. So uh, that I saw... Uh, weekly when we did training yep. and so over almost 20 years of being uh, a trainer uh, I saw and worked with a lot of different people also over my career at OSCI there were a number of people that cycled through that then went to work at the pen mm-hmm. uh, so I didn't I showed up and I knew about half of the staff already yep and Probably 20% of them had worked with me for a year or more. Mm-hmm. So the hardest thing going to any new place is, uh, what's this guy like? Right. How, wh- how does he make his decisions? Should we support him? Yep. And so a lot of that groundwork was laid by people before me. And when I came over, the acceptance was a lot easier. Yeah. And uh, I knew that I needed to make sure... I had my experience and I could use it, but I needed to be open to this is the way we do things here at the pen. Right. And I absolutely welcomed that. And the first thing I noticed was the level of respect for any lieutenant or captain at the penitentiary was 100% solid. We said, jump, everybody jump. Yeah. We said, we need this done. It gets done. Right. And the sergeants were the ones that got it done for us. And I absolutely respect all of the sergeants and leaders at the pen because they made my job easier. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it, it, it's kind of important to explain. From, from this portion, I worked at uh, Two Rivers Correctional Institution, um, and then I worked at the pen, also at Mill Creek. Um, so I've I've been at three different institutions. I've not worked at OCI, but looking at the different dynamics, every institution has a different culture, different dynamics with the staff and the inmates, a different culture with the staff and the management, and then the management and the inmates. So each institution has its own separate culture, way of getting things done. Um, you know, for instance, Two Rivers, it was very militant. You did what the lieutenant or the captain told you to do because, my God, they were in charge. And if they didn't, you, would, you wouldn't be doing push-ups, but they would make your life a living hell. Um, so it was that very, you know, 
stick oriented type of management. You know, we're going to beat you down if you don't do, um, you know, come to the pen. Like you said, it's very, here's your carrot, take the carrot, but I have the stick if I need it. Yep. Um, Mill Creek was very much so, you know, you just looked at them and, you know, you work together because it's such a small facility. You just looked at each other and you're like, okay, we have to get this done. We need to, we're a family. We're all very family oriented. Um, so it's, it's that different mentality. I've never worked at OCI, but, um, you know, what was your experience with management and staff at OCI? For, for the first, uh, 10, 14 years, it was, it was very similar to the way the military was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they did their thing. They gave us orders. We carried them out. Yep. And we had a, we had a pretty good working relationship. We had a lot of, of senior, uh, lieutenants and captains. They weren't all rock stars, right? but, but you understood that. Yeah. But in the end they were, they were trying to take care of you while they're trying to take care of the institution. Right. Uh, when the, the shift started to occur on both sides. So there was a shift going from uh, we need solid veteran staff to be able to do these jobs because they need to have that ability. When it changed politically on the management side to promoting we need diversity, but what happened was they put who they wanted in and they were not the best fit. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the experience. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the people skills. They didn't earn the respect or have the respect of the staff <clears throat> that then triggered the union side of things where we eventually had a, uh, hostile work environment right. on both sides. Right. And it was difficult to talk with any managers because they had become so guarded about being sure. judged on their decisions. Yep. And being questioned about their authority and all of all of the rest of it, and mm-hmm. I had for a time, for probably a year, was like that until I went. I'm just part of the problem. Yeah, I, following the herd. Yeah, yeah. I'm creating this distress, and I hated the way it made me feel. Yeah, I fucking hated it. Yeah. At times, it needed to be necessary to do things like get get new body armor. Mm-hmm. There was a fight there that still to this day just befuddles me i understand yeah. Yeah. the politics of it but it's just ridiculous yeah. but it eventually grew to be uh, a combative relationship mm-hmm. at osci when i got to the pen it was not yeah there was a different set in that brandon kelly the superintendent was i said do it and you do it because if you don't you're going to find a different job outside of DOC. Right. And there wasn't any in between. Right. Uh, but at when our you, working level, it was a lot more manageable. When you first came over, were you expecting to, you know, especially coming over as manager, were you expecting to have to fight with line staff or was that just, had you already kind of gathered some intel from people that had already, you know, moved over there to see how the working environment was? How was that? I knew from from some people that I trusted that yeah. were working there that it was better, okay, and that I would like it. And I left I, I left my blinders open. I, I, they weren't shut anymore. I left them open, going, "What's this going to be like? What's it going to feel like?" Right. Not just not just working with management or working with staff, but also the inmates. Right. 
you know, you hear about the pin and all the bad shit that happens there. Right. Uh, how was, how was it going to be for me? Was it going to be like, cause I visited a couple different prisons across the country to see what they're like. And some places you, you can cut the tension with a knife. You're right. 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 At the pin, it was very similar to working with the inmates that I had over at OSCI. Again, I knew a, a good amount of them. Yeah. And they had already said who I was. And then when I got there, like, oh, yeah, that's the dude I was telling you about. That's McGrath. Right. Right. You know? And uh, so I realized that the comparison is this going over there when I did in 18 was working in a similar environment during the, the good 10 years that I had from 95 uh, to 2005 or so, mm-hmm. uh, working at OSCI. It was, we're a group, yep. we're tight, we get it done, we don't complain that much, right? and we got each other's back. Yep. Because shit's going to happen. Yep. This is hardcore, real criminals, murderers, rapists, and the whole nine yards. Yeah. So... Uh, I dug the feel I felt, uh, supported and yeah, I was like, I'm back to, to what corrections should be like for me. Yeah. Yeah. Which was different than you'd been experiencing the the years prior. Um, so you, you moved over there, you started to like the environment, enjoying getting back to like your roots of, of where you came from. Um, and I would, you know, from, from what I saw, you were very successful integrating really quickly, w- way faster than some other individuals that had transferred over, or promoted over to, uh, the pen. And, you know, that honestly goes back to a merit of, you know, having worked under you as a sergeant, when I said something, you listened, when I said, Hey, this is how we do things here. You listened. And I don't know if I presented it in arrogant jerkish way i probably did because that was the (laughs) highlight of my career and i was super disgruntled but um you know i just i remember working with you on multiple different occasions where i was like hey you know lt like this is how we need to do this this is how this should be done we we don't want to go down that path because it opens up that doorway and and i just remember you being super receptive and you're just like yep okay roger you you come up with a plan present it to me and you'd sign off on it and we'd roll um, so I, I can definitely see how that transition was very easy for you. Um, so I kind of want to fast forward to, um, the last year of your career, um, because you went, well, we, we all did, but, uh, the last year of your career, there were some, some pretty heavy, crazy things that happened. So, um, if you want to hit some just kind of wave tops leading up to um, your last couple months being employed. So when I showed up at the pen, I, uh, I got my feet wet and we got into it and we were just dealing with, with corrections 101. These are, these are uh, criminals. Yep. They've all been convicted and they are still Majority of them have criminal thinking, and we had to deal with criminal activity and negative behaviors inside uh, of the penitentiary, doing drugs, fights, stabbings, uh, DSU problems, uh, good staff, bad staff, training staff. Uh, all of that is what I started off with, and I was I was able to engage in that a lot because it it made sense. It's 
what I'd grown up doing. Right. But then we had what, what occurs in corrections because I thought early in my career that everything was brand new and they, these are first ideas <laughs> and they were crazy. But then yeah. if you go back in, in DOC history and uh, in American uh, corrections, it's not, they were just being recycled. But yeah. this recycled idea was being led by the superintendent, Brandon Kelly of, of treating them like humans. But that quickly moved to almost giving too much, mm-hmm. too fast, and without considering the staff on the sequ- on the equal side. So mm-hmm. that was the drawback was we were doing all this on the left-hand side, uh, doing DSU, reduced sanctions. We eliminated for, death row. For, for those of you that uh, don't know, DSU stands for Disciplinary Segregation or SEG, um, the SHU. Um, special housing, there's there's multiple different names for it, but it's essentially when an inmate engages in a misconduct, uh, say they get in a fight or they are bringing in drugs or something, they will get sanctioned to losing their privileges and going to a separate building from the normal housing unit in which they have, you know, essentially just books and maybe a radio. Um, you only get out for, you know, a couple hours a day. Uh, but it's it's essentially your your lockdown. So go ahead. yeah, so <clears throat> that we had back to back to back to back to back issues that weren't handled individually. They compounded so that over two years, the last two years I was there, you had massive events that led to me deciding that I didn't want to stay in that job anymore. I wanted to, I wanted to leave. Because you had been placed as a shift lieutenant over swing shift um, in the special housing, in charge of all special housing um, on swing shift, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a difficult position. I went to management and I, and uh, the captain of the building was a guy named Toby uh, Tooley, uh, who I had picked on relentlessly and successfully uh, and would put him into a corner verbally mm-hmm. uh, and I regret uh, some of that. Uh, but I saw what Toby was doing. I found out that he had had the, ba- the staff's back for, for the most part, and they respected him. So I went to Toby, and I said, I will come work for you if I can do what I do. Yeah. And he understood what that meant. Yep. What I do is I take care of my staff, and I take care of the building. And if I call you, it's only because I need to let you know or I need to ask for permission. Right. I'm not going to screw things up. Right. Because of me or hopefully not because of my staff. So he, yeah, he said, come on out. I, I'd, I'd like you to work for me. I think they need some, some guidance. So I went to work out there, but all of those issues just really compounded and made, uh, things extremely difficult, not just for me, but for everybody in corrections. And it was almost, it almost broke us. Yeah. Uh, it broke me some. But we had that as a major issue in shifting in how we were supposed to deal with the inmates. And none of this was in writing. Yeah. And then it's the, it, it impacted special housing. It impacted segregation. It impacted this massive mental health specialty place that we had. Uh, but it didn't focus any on the staff and how they were supposed to do things. And we were having a shift paradigm at the penitentiary that had been doing the same way of business for since its beginning. And... We were told it needed to change 
whether we liked it or not. And that was that was the pill that couldn't be swallowed. And it was interesting. So outside of the walls, um, politically, that was at the top and the height of the defund the police movement. So politically, yeah. we're having riots. We even had a couple protests um, out in front of the penitentiary of, you know, re- release the inmates or free the inmates, whatever it was, some, some you know— protest whatever it was about but it was it was at the height of the nationwide defund the police movement you have to do something you know police officers are bad which inherently means correction staff are bad and and i remember you know personally that same doom and gloom feeling of being like man like i've always been able to tell people in the community like yeah i work in doc or you know whatever and they're like oh man like that's that's good. You're keeping us safe. And then that shift of like, you almost don't want to tell people where you work because they've believed the narrative of you're the problem. You're the oppressor. You're the one holding these individuals back. And you're like, but I know what those individuals do. I, I know those individuals will harm people. I know those individuals. So it's, it's not only are you dealing with the political structure inside of work, but you're dealing with the political structure outside of work. And everybody's saying you're a horrible, horrendous person, and I can't believe you guys are keeping these poor, innocent people locked up that, like you said, are, are rapists and murderers, um, you know, bank robbers, like the people who harm other people. Um, so I think that's that's an important piece to kind of fit in there, too, that it's not just work, political dynamics. It was also outside as well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but the compounding effects were a uh, the start of covid and a brand new threat to everybody and we are purpose-driven and service-oriented unfortunately for doc they picked a narrative where we were a business Mm -hmm. and they kept saying the business of corrections and it never has been never will be it's a service right but something worldwide that nobody had ever experienced that we were having to go through trying to do the best job in a very difficult situation and changing daily and sometimes twice daily about how we would do things to try to keep the population safe when on the other hand the population the 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 convicted felons didn't have to do the same thing that we did in wearing masks staying six feet apart washing their hands we didn't have to do any of that but we would be held accountable by them as much as our staff were right uh, our management team and it was absolutely uh stressful and then we got to the summer of 2020 when we had an exorbitant fire season that pushed everybody's buttons on top of compounding with COVID and on top of how we're treating inmates. And then we had to take in all of these other prisons inmates and house them in the penitentiary and make it work for the safety of Oregonians. When, if anybody ever suggested that before they would laugh us, laugh at us and say, you're absolutely insane because people are going to get killed. Right. Because the people that are at these other prisons, a lot of them are rats and snitches or witnesses that rolled over or other gang members that are on target list to die, Mm -hmm. to be killed on site. And when they see them, that's what's going to happen. But we had to make it work in a quarter mile uh, 
you know, 25 foot tall wall with hardly any additional staff that knew how the operations went or could do a damn thing about it. And just, just for, uh, clarification, like I, I think every single staff member understood the necessity of that situation. Um, why we had to move everybody into the pen and why we had to move them there. We understand that at, at the end of the day, we, we understand the necessity of it. Um, and I don't think there was a staff member there that wasn't ready to go all hands on deck and help out. But like you said, you're, you're bringing in, you know, essentially five different enemy groups together and trying to figure out in a very chaotic way how to house everybody safely, how to keep, you know, your your staff safe, how to keep the inmates safe, and how to feed essentially double or almost it was it was it almost triple the population. Almost triple. Yeah. almost triple the population what you're normally supposed to house and feed and clean and, you know, provide showers and and, and everything else. Um it was a massive feat on top of dealing with COVID and at that time um, not knowing what we knew about COVID and having to, you know, isolate individuals who were infected, having to, um, you know, move them out of the population and, and house them in different areas. So again, you're, you're, you have all these different dynamics. And honestly, I would venture to say that was the most unprecedented situation that Oregon prisons have ever seen and most likely will ever see it was the perfect storm of um chaos that rained down all at once and i i seriously doubt anything like that to that gravity and magnitude will ever happen outside of a a zombie apocalypse you know coming to fruition it it was completely unprecedented there's no playbook for how do you evacuate five prisons and dump them into one there was no playbook on well how do you take staff that have never seen the inside of the penitentiary and show them how to how to work door systems that they've never seen before how do you how do you protect the snitches how do you protect the the you know gang members how do you keep them separated but feed them in a in an open chow hall that seats 500 people and you have an infrastructure that prevents that. So there's just so many different variations to that, that, you know, how do you, how do you even work that? Well, <clears throat> the compounding just kept coming because of COVID we, everybody was isolated and mm-hmm. stressed. And then we had a significantly reduced workforce. Yep. And as leaders, not managers, as leaders, yeah. you are concerned about your staff being able to do it day in, day out, because you, were, you weren't just asking them. Right. You know, in normal times, we had to tell them, you're not going home to your family. You're not yeah. getting the rest you need. You're yeah. not going to be able to decompress, because I need you to work at least another four hours, if not another eight and then come back and probably do it again tomorrow yep. for weeks on end because I don't know when this is going to be over. Yeah. Because we also had uh, an unprecedented leave act from the federal government and from the state for families because their kids were at home. Yep. And then there was just 
at the time, COVID was taking one person out and was putting them gone for at least two weeks. Yep. Okay. And then if it affected their kids, they had to stay home, take care of their kids. Yep. So it was, it was the way to not just add straws to a camelback, camel's back, but a dump truck yeah. backing up continuously 24 hours a day with fresh concrete. Yes. Uh, taller and thicker and bigger than Hoover Dam on top of leaders that were trying just to help each other with no help from the outside. Right. right. And so that was a super pressure. I can only uh, compare it to a lobster at the, at the deepest part of the ocean who had to, had to reinvent themselves to survive. They had to shed the old skin. Yep. So you really had to ask yourself, is this what I want to do? And is this where I want to work? And when I, when they came and said, after all of that, after we, because we didn't just, we didn't complain. We just said, how are we going to get through this? Right. And when you and I were there and we brought in the the bus load from transport, bus loads of them without any idea of who they were other than getting a handed a deck of ID cards and we had to ID them all over again. We had no enemies lists, yep. no charges, no idea of how to house them. And we were going to do that back to back to back. Uh, we took in how many buses that that was like, we were taking in five different transport buses that yeah. night. I think. Yeah. And some uh, vans and, and some vans. Yeah. yeah. It was. It, yeah. And, and, and this isn't during, Monday through Friday yeah. with all the resources available. I think at that point it was 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Um, and we went until six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And you had been up for 24 hours at least. Yeah. I had gotten there at 6 a.m. and then ended up working till, I want to say it was close to two. Yeah. And there were the three of us. Yeah. There, were me, there was me, you, and Jeff. Yep. who was working GP, doing a great job trying to manage all of the, the general population of the penitentiary, which at the time was, I don't know, what was it, 1,600? Yeah. Um, and uh, then we had special housing and then all these intakes, which we weren't going to be able to put them in the cells. We were, we were going to find floors uh, in the gym yep. for them, you know, in the multipurpose building. So uh, that... I had to reinvent myself, and in doing so, it was at this point in my life, this is what I want to keep doing. And reading the tea leaves, seeing where we were headed, and when they offered me, when they said, you have to make a decision, either get the COVID shot or claim that religiously you can't, mm-hmm. I, I had to choose option three, which was I'm not getting the COVID shot. Uh, my doctor said there's not a need. I don't meet the physical parameters for it. And that's not good enough because everybody I know that tried that was denied by their uh, doctor. And so mine said he wouldn't write anything. Right. Um, and I didn't have a religious reason. I, there wasn't, God wasn't telling me that I didn't have to get it. I couldn't justify. I couldn't look somebody in the eye and say no. So, right. and this is, this is something I, I really want to highlight this portion because, um, I remember having this, this exact conversation with you just like it was yesterday, honestly, um, where we were, we were talking about that. And it was like, I, I remember you saying that and where you're like, I don't, 
have anything against vaccines. I don't have anything against this one. I just don't want to take it. And that's where I'm standing. And, and I remember like the, the biggest thing to highlight about that is it, it wasn't an option. It was, you will do this yeah, or else there's, it, there was no, you know, there wasn't any encouragement. There wasn't any like, Hey, here's the study. It was, it was, you do this or else. And at the time the governor had put out the mandate that, um, every single state employee would get the COVID vaccine or take a religious exemption and standing on your morals, you know, getting back to where, how you were raised of, you know, you, you can't lie. I mean, I, I'm sure there were a lot of people that, you know, claimed whatever religious and, you know, marked it down or, or whatever, or didn't, but by the same hand, it's like, that's on them, but you weren't willing to do that. So that's a, a pretty massive testament to your moral compass on this situation. Um, and I, I remember having the conversation where it wasn't like you were just trying to do it to stick it to the man because the man's, you know, the, the state wasn't going to, you know, they were going to be able to recover from if they terminated your employment. They yeah. weren't going to be, you would be missed for a week or two and then they would fill somebody else because they're such a massive organization. So really, the only person who would suffer out of this would be you, your family, um, friends, uh, and so forth. So yeah, I, I just, I wanted to highlight that. So yeah, no, it, <clears throat> I had to make that decision. What am I going to do? And I was able to start with the, the superintendent, Corey Fuhrer at that time, and pull him aside and say, I chose option C. You know, that wasn't written. It was a, yep. here's what you're going to need to do, Corey, and here's why. And we had an honest conversation. Uh, he understood, but he still had to do what he had to do. Yep. Uh, and so did I. And uh, I... I was massively depressed because that had been what I, what I had as a purpose. Mm -hmm. One of my big purposes was to be a leader in that environment for whoever I came in contact, whether you're in blue, whether you're in gray, whether you're in civvies, whether you're a visitor, uh, I took pride in, in what I did and I felt like it was my purpose. Right. You know, um, but I had to make a decision and mine was, I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to have to, uh, take an exception and live with it. It was, it was going to, I wasn't going to be able to look myself in the mirror and go, you're being the best man you can be, right? <clears throat> you're being the best person you can be honestly with yourself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it to this day is, it was the best decision I could make. And I'm glad that I did. And I've learned a lot being out here afterwards, and I've been able to help other men. Um, I would gladly help a woman that came from corrections, but one hasn't called me yet. So let's let's back up before we get into that because um, I think it's imperative. So you you went through the process. You essentially what they what did they actually fire you for or terminate your employment for? Because it, the the judge in the employment case said that the governor had the right to force this decision and to fire me because of an unprecedented medical event. Okay. And that since I did not comply with 
uh, options one or two mm -hmm. that I knew option the, that I would be terminated and that that was my choice. Mm -hmm. Even though in normal circumstances outside of a pandemic, uh, he would have looked at it differently because okay. they should have worked with me. Right. Uh, but because of extraordinary circumstance, uh, there had never been a legal precedent like this before. Mm -hmm. So he had no grounds to stand on to help me. So, so essentially you were, your employment was terminated. You had 20, 26 years of service to the state, um, making a huge impact, a uh, long, fruitful career, uh, giving back uh, to the state, giving back to the employees of the state, training, um, you know, serving in, in extra capacities. You know, you were on the tactical team for years. You were a trainer. You were you an FDO, a field training officer. Yeah. So you're a field training officer, training new staff, literally a, a pinnacle of you know, staff for the state giving back public servant, like what I would imagine or picture a public servant being you encapsulated all of that and, and push that forward. And you were let go just because, you know, there was an unprecedented event. Right. And you didn't follow orders. So you, you refused to continue doing something because it, you know, went up against your moral compass. Yeah. Morally and ethically, I didn't see that there wasn't an option C right. because medically 65 to 70% of the staff did not have a COVID shot. Right. And the only requirement was they had to wear a mask mm -hmm. and follow the, the COVID protocol like I could have done. Right. The state could have said. And that was, that was after you had already been terminated. They came out with these standards. It, well, even during and okay. then after they, they did not change any standards. But since it was, since you had, was it directly disobeyed a direct, an order yes. from yes. a superior? Right. Being and, and being in management services changed things also because right. I have a higher standard of expectation morally right. and ethically right. that I would, that I should follow the orders given me. Mm -hmm. um, even though we're told if an order conflicts uh, and it's not the right decision, then you should say so, which and, is what I was in default to your right. Moral as long as I'm not, as long as right. nobody's getting hurt, there's no escapes right. and yeah, nobody got hurt and nobody yeah. escaped yeah. because of my decision. Right. But, uh, I spent $25,000, uh, in legal fees trying to, uh, get that overturned. Mm -hmm. It didn't. I still feel good about having my, my days in court and being able to say my piece. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't regret what I did at all. I'm glad that I did. I got no money out of it. I lost money. Right. Um, nobody helped. Nobody else helped pay for my fees. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, uh, a political stunt. It was personal. Right. It was completely and 100% personal. Um, I would do it again. Um, I would become more active on the outset. That's the only thing I would change. Right. And I would start uh, with a political and documentation phase to prove. But we couldn't then because we didn't know about the results of the shots. Right. Like right. we do now. Right. So, um, yeah. And now I'm 
retired. So now you're you're retired. Um, one of the things that I would like to get into now at this point is you kind of made mention of uh, helping um, individuals that have been in corrections. Um, what is your premise of that? What, just a, a general outline, what's, how did that come to pass? What are you doing? What are things that you help out with? So after, after I retired, um, <clears throat> I now have all this time at home along with, I was duty stationed at home about two months before the, the termination and the forced retirement. All of the, all of the encompassing decades of working and the things that occurred, uh, the title is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, mm -hmm. The things that we thought that we had under control, that we had dealt with, that <clears throat> we were normal as much as we could, it became, it came full circle. And I had horrific dreams. I didn't want to go out in public. I was bitter. Um, I was, I was kind of an, I was, I was an asshole to my, to my wife, to my family. I was not in a good place. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going through this legal battle with DOC and in, uh, the end part of December, I realized I was going to, uh, become an alcoholic wife beater like my dad, mm -hmm. uh, which was the downside to, to my dad. Uh, and I had learned uh, growing up, I never wanted to be that. Right. I never wanted to be that part of him. I wanted to be the other part of him. And I had a breakdown and I had to ask God for help. And uh, it didn't come right away, but it came. Mm -hmm. And it was, you need to get your ass some counseling. You need to ask for help. Well, what's out there? And uh, had, <clears throat> and I don't remember who it was that said, did you know that on the books for the state, uh, that a state trooper, state fire uh, employees, uh, state parole and probation, and state corrections can put in through workman's comp for PTSD and get counseling, mm -hmm. okay? Get medication, see a doctor, a psychiatrist, psychologist about this. And they'll pay for it, <clears throat> and you can go through the process. Because now I'm no longer with DOC. I don't have that, uh, that mental health benefit anymore. I don't have any mental you don't health. Have health, health insurance. Yeah, yeah, right. I have no, Which no medical coverage. The state does have extraordinary health insurance. Yeah. Um, they have really great benefits packages. Yeah. Um, but obviously they don't carry that on past, you know, retirement yeah. or whenever your employment is ended, you don't get to continue that, that. So, um, Bef before we jump into the counseling portion, um, or to you trying to find help, I, I want to ask what would, if, if you could sum up the culture of dealing with traumatic events within DOC, how would you summarize that? If you want, so it, we only talked about it if we were with a group that we trusted. Okay. And that usually came down to when it was the most horrific things and how it was actually impacting you so negatively, 
there might be one person you talked to mm-hmm. and 99% of the time it ain't your cow, it ain't your spouse. Yeah. Just not. It's another motherfucker you work with that has been there through thick and thin <clears throat> and you're going to tell them that you're semi fucked up. I, I never really told anybody how fucked up I was. Um, and I didn't trust the EAP, the uh, emergency something uh, counselors because that the state had contracted because they were just the rookies brand new and they dealt with right. family issues and, you know, depression, but they didn't deal with us and they weren't set up for us because mm-hmm. they weren't private. You right. had to come in through the front door, park in the same parking lot, right. and they had none of them had experience in what we did. So why the fuck do I want to go talk with you? And I can't trust you because if they find out how fucked up I am, they're going to call my employer and tell them they're fucked up, and yeah. they're going to put me on uh, on leave and then fire me right. because of how fucked up it is, how much I'm drinking, how much dope I'm doing, all the other stuff that that's going on. Now I I wasn't doing any illegal drugs. But I was using alcohol to suppress a lot of my issues. So that's uh, a pretty common um, culture within DC. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. It's, it's, we would talk like, about it. You and can't we would... do weed. You can't do cocaine. You can't do you know any of the, the illicit drugs. But booze is totally acceptable. Yeah, it's, and it was uh, it was part of the social scheme and almost applauded. Yeah, by your yeah. coworkers. Yeah. Yeah, you would get together and people would get blackout drunk and mm-hmm. do stupid shit and be like, "Oh, you remember when Billy did it?" Oh yeah, yeah. I wanna, I wanna ask one question about um, what is it about, you know, obviously with your wife. What was it that was holding you back from sharing with your wife? Was it, was it out of protection? Was it out of understanding? Like, what portion of that was it that? prevented you from sharing because I, I struggled with a lot of the same thing. So I'm just curious what, yeah. what you, and unless you work in that environment, it's hard. It is almost impossible to comprehend what we have to deal with. Mm. And when we came home, I'm no longer at work. I'm Roy. Yeah. And I'm the provider. I'm the protector. And if I talk about, having nightmares about being stabbed or chased or, you know, all the stuff that happened in the dreams and nightmares that you have. Uh, my wife did not for the majority of it doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to have to sit there and try to explain it to her and have her still not get it Mm -hmm. on the, on the side. Now, after the counseling, I've been able to share with her, uh, a number of things so that she has a general idea. Right. But the full comprehension of it will never occur for her. Mm-hmm. But she knows now that that is a real thing. Right. But because I never shared it with her, she didn't think it was a thing. Yeah. And she didn't understand why I am going to counseling and why I need to share this and why they want to put me on medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and why it mattered so much and why other people are calling you and want to talk about this. Yeah. And it's a real thing. So I should have let her in at the beginning Mm -hmm. because I told her this is a fucked up job and I do fucked up shit. Yeah. And I, because of it, I'm fucked up. Yeah. And I'm not normal. Right. And I will never be normal. 
uh, and she gets that now, it's still hard for her because she's normal. Mm-hmm. She is, her personality lends her to stay like a magnet repelled from any stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is foreign. Right. Right. You know, it's like going to the Antarctic. Yeah. She'll never go there. She'll never get it. Yeah. You know, so, uh, but that, that's changed for us because God answered what I needed to do. I feel that God led me to do these things. And at different times I've had a, a, a feeling where a name will come up about somebody that I hadn't seen in forever. Right. There shouldn't, there shouldn't have been a trigger. Yeah. I can't go back and say, this is what triggered that thought. Right. Right. But a name comes up and I'm trying to contact them. Right. And so far I've been successful and I've been able to share why I got a hold of them. Mm-hmm. And it has worked to benefit them. And I feel like I've fulfilled that that request by God to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't hear a voice. I don't have a scrolled writing. There's no flaming. It's just a name will come into my head and go, and then it'll grow and it'll be like, what, what are they doing? I wonder what's going on with them. I wonder right. how they're doing. And it feels like that's a purpose. Yeah. Okay. I haven't reached out to anybody that hasn't been reciprocatory. Every single time it's been, thank you, man. I, I needed that. Right. Right. Yeah. So with, with that being said, um, I, I just appreciate like the, the open and honesty there. Cause that's a huge thing to, to be able to like say, you know, hey, this is why, um, what encouragement would you have, um, for individuals just starting out in the business or that have maybe been in the business for a few years? Um, what advice or encouragement would you have for them to maybe help along their journey through their career? It's, it's going to be a little bigger than that, Mike. Okay. I, uh, right now the resources are not identified specifically for them and it needs to be put in place by the state and it needs to be forced they need to have a uh, one to two people that can be that can evaluate them and their mental health mm-hmm. where they're at be honest with them and then be able to get them uh, help uh, of what they need but they they need to do a, a check-in with a professional um, they need to have a a brother, a sister, a coworker, a supervisor, somebody that they feel they can trust to reach out to and say, I'm a little fucked up Mm -hmm. and I need some help. Mm -hmm. What do I do? That's what they need. And it doesn't need to be, they don't need to regurgitate or puke out all of it. They just need to say, I I need to check in with somebody Mm -hmm. because I'm fucked up. And we need to, uh, re (coughs) retool, that system right now so that it's similar to what is happening on the east coast or happened on the east coast where 
you have counselors, psychiatrists, and psychologists that have experience in this field or in emergency services. Mm -hmm. So firemen, police probation, corrections, uh, EMTs that have a private way of having us either show up in person or virtually or telephonically that can that can check in with us on a mandatory basis, mm-hmm. okay, especially at the beginning, and also we'll check in with our family. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying that, and I know other people are going to say, oh, fuck that, I don't want anybody <laughs> talking with my family. Yeah. But yeah. your family knows when you're fucked up, Yeah, and nobody asks them. Yeah. They are the silent victims, Yeah, and they need to have a check-in. Yeah. When I worked for Marion County as a deputy, they had, a, they had and still do have a system where they have... Uh, a multidiscipline ministers that are all former police mm-hmm. that are not attached to the department at all. Yeah. And they meet you as a new employee. They meet your family privately first and then with you. Mm-hmm. They give them all the resources to say, here's what happens if you have a death, if you have a serious sickness, if something's going on with your spouse, the, the employee. Right. Here's how you reach out to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then they have mandatory check-ins yeah. uh, every six months to a year. And then they have no-notice check-ins where they'll come to your fucking work site and tell your uh, supervisor, hey, I need, I need, to, see, uh, I need to see Roy uh, for a little bit. Yeah. Can, you, can you get him here? Yeah, not a problem. And they, the supervisors, the sergeants, all the old people learn to trust these people because they respected them and they earned their trust by not sharing that business. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but they would say, Hey, look, uh, Roy's going to need some time off. All right. So, uh, I need you to set him up for a week and, uh, just put it under, uh, un- under medical mm-hmm. and they wouldn't say what, and then some people would be off for a week. Some people would never come back to work, mm-hmm. but a lot of people needed that help, needed that check-in. And so do the families. Yeah. So find that resources that you can, because you are tough, you are strong, uh, you are capable, but you're in human and you're imperfect and you're going to need help. Yeah. I didn't think I did. The other people around me didn't think they did, but they should have got it then because if you wait 26 fucking years, you got a ton of beggars. I got, I got a, I have a train load, like you see on I-84 that are, right. that are double right. deckers yep. and just keep going yep. on. Yep. That's all my baggage Yeah, because I waited that long. Don't have that baggage. Just have a suitcase. And unpack that shit. Yeah. It'll be a lot easier yeah. than waiting and being tough and getting divorced and being an alcoholic or using drugs or, or you know, ultimately bringing in a weapon and drugs to inmates so you can get fired and become a locked up felon. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a crazy perspective. And sadly, the, the, the tough mentality is you know part of that culture that we were talking about earlier um of you know we don't talk about it we don't deal with it and you know like we'd also talked about earlier that you know you're you're only sharing bits and pieces um with individuals around you because it's it's almost out of fear of like if one person puts together all of my puzzle pieces they're gonna really see how messed up and broken i am as a person and if i'm that vulnerable they might, you know, put my business out on front street and everybody will know because sadly, um, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it where somebody does go through something 
tragic or traumatic or has some sort of drama and everybody is talking about it from you know all the line staff to you know the the kitchen staff to the inmates to ev- everybody knows everything and you can't just keep something on the down low um so it's it's a double-edged sword so it's like that's where you have that i think that callus like built up you know i don't want everybody to have all the pieces put together but then also you are human like you said and you yeah. don't want that freight train because that freight train you know the track's gonna run out someday and your demise will be at the end of that track if you don't start offloading it so it can slow down yeah um so kind of kind of segueing from your career where you're at um where you've been to where where you're at today um i i kind of wanted to go through just some some different um personality traits of you know mainly men but women as well cuz i think women can uh, you know oftentimes display these but um you know i genuinely have a heart and a passion for mentoring men training men uh helping you know men to create a better society um and i don't want to say that in a you know uh anti woman way or or anything like that but i I have seen the system and kind of my theory of the system and having worked in corrections for almost 10 years, a lot of the individuals that we dealt with inside of the walls, almost all of them come from, you know, fatherless homes, broken homes, um, you know, divorced families, um, orphans. Uh, Very rarely did you ever have the story of you know, yeah, we had mom and dad and they were great role models and great people and, you know, raised me right. The, the majority of the time, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking with, with inmates, it's, yeah, I had a really crappy childhood. It was really traumatic. I, you know, I was a victim myself of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I mean, we, we've heard the stories of the, the guys who were, you know, test dummies for mom and dad's dope and, you know, uh, had to deal with being physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, sexually abused. And then that, you know, triggered the trajectory of their life. Um, so, so realistically looking at, you know, some of these traits, you know, I, I want to encourage men to stand up like, like you have on their convictions and their morals and, and find what, what are their morals? What are their, ethics what what do they need to how do they need to conduct themselves how do they need to treat you know women and kids how do they need to treat other men um so that's kind of that's kind of the direction i want to move so we can we can kind of um take take bites of this so we'll just start with with as you roy how did you figure out your your code of ethics and your code of conduct how you wanted to act as a man um initially it was reinforced by my dad and then the other peers and uh influencers in my life so uh coaches teachers uh friends of of our family Mm -hmm. uh and a, a lot of it was my dad um 
And then I think that's the most important. The second one is how not to act, you know, to figure out your ethics and morals. You need to also know what not to do from my dad. I learned not to be an abusive alcoholic that will, uh, literally break a, a woman's orbital eye socket and mm-hmm. put her into the hospital and apologize and then do it over again and again and again and and just have your kid have PTSD from you know being little up until you you punch him back at 16 yeah so so you learned via his actions yeah. what you didn't want to do right. in your life what I didn't want to be like what yeah. I didn't want to do that's why I I don't gamble mm-hmm. um if I drink I there's, there has to be somebody there. If I'm going to get blotto, uh, completely, uh, there has to be one or more people that are physically capable mm-hmm. and willing to, to deal with me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not a, a Navy SEAL. I am, I'm not uh, anything special. I'm just a bigger man. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with a, a, a small skill set that, most people can't deal with. Right. So right. that's, uh, yeah, because I, I've never put hands on a, a woman like that. Uh, have I put hands on women in, in the line of duty I have? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, I will say that I've had to put hands on, uh, both of my stepdaughter, well, two of my stepdaughters in one incidence apiece where one was trying to break, things in our house Mm -hmm. and I had to stop her from doing that. Mm -hmm. And I just restrained her and put her on the ground Yeah, until she was able to leave the house. Right. And then the other one was poking me in the chest and in the face. And it was just a technique where it was like, Oh, nope, keep that hand away from me. Right. This is not going to happen. And that's what needed to happen. They tell me now I, I'm sorry I made you do that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't act like that. This will suck when my kid does this to me. Right. And I'll have to make that decision. And I said, right. I never wanted, I never want to put my hands on, on anybody, yeah. especially a woman, because that's not how I was raised. Again, yeah. yeah. I learned from my mother, right. You protect your sisters. You protect me. This is your job. We are smaller, weaker for the most part. Mm hmm. We are still highly capable. We will fight to the death, but we can't do it at the same level you and your dad can. Mm-hmm. Okay? Right, right. And uh, they are quite willing warriors. If you put a rifle in their hands, they'll yeah. kill you just like anybody else. Sure. But I learned it from them. It was reinforced in school. It was reinforced through our friends. This is how we treat each other. This is, we don't stand for bullying. Mm-hmm. We can, we we haze each other, but mm-hmm. we don't bully each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got reinforced in the military. And right. then when I came out and I went to the corrections, it got reinforced there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how we do business. Mm-hmm. These are human beings. Mm-hmm. These are not convict pieces of shit that we spit on and don't give a fuck about. Right. Because we do this without guns. We yes. do this without force. Yes. We do this and we get them to, to cooperate. Right. And maybe we have a positive impact because a lot of them never had that from a male role model. Right. Right. Okay. And, and you're, it's, it's interesting in the corrections world, you're dealing, especially when you're, so like when I started, I was 
just freshly 21. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I'm dealing with individuals that are, you know, my age. Yes. But also I'm dealing with guys in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, up to eighties, you know? And, yeah. and so you're dealing with, with individuals as, you know, a younger individual and, you know, you've experienced it in your career too, where you're, like you said, a role model yeah. to somebody that's older than you, yep. you know? Um, so I want to, I want to ask when, when it comes down to, you know, teachers, coaches, um, you know, I've, you know, coached my kids' sports teams, you know, I've had teachers impact, um, but I want to hear from, from you, like not having a, a male role model that was, um, you know, that, that had some abusive tendencies, um, how how much of an impact did those coaches and teachers make on you? How much of an impact did they, um, did they have on you? Massive. They, uh, <clears throat> as a, as a freshman playing football, um, I had a, a group of friends that at, at the time w- would have been classified as, uh, weed heads, mm-hmm. uh, flunkies, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, uh, the, the coaches as a group, not individual, but as a group, pulled me up <clears throat> and said, you're part of a team. And this team needs to be successful. For that, you, we want you to be successful. Mm-hmm. We notice that there's this group of friends you have. And you probably have a strong connection to one or two of them. Yeah. But what we know is that your friend group will also help influence the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to stay with that friend group, you will be, you'll have to eventually make a choice. So you should start thinking about deciding now, do I want to play football or do I want to hang out with those people because they're going to influence you not to play football mm-hmm. or do the other things that we know you want to do and that yeah. you're good at. Yeah. We're concerned for you. Our suggestion is have a conversation with them. Tell them you can't hang out with them anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the cleanest way to do it. Uh, we're not telling you you can't. Right. But we want you to be part of this team and fully committed. So <clears throat> but when they when they had this conversation with you, you know, in, in your brain, had you seen that there was an, you know, there were other options than hanging out with them? Or was it just... Fuck no. Know? I I was like, <laughs> I, I it caught me out of left field. And I'm like... Right. What the fuck? You want me to, to tell my friends to fuck off? Yeah. You know, yeah. I wanted to tell them, fuck you, but I, I was raised, raised different. Sure. Sure. I was like, yeah, okay, thanks coach. Yeah. And you know, I almost ran to, to the, the one kid I hung out with Billy and, uh, I told him what had happened and there was a girl in the group that, that I was really attracted to. And, uh, <clears throat> Billy excused her and said, Hey, I got to talk with Roy. And, uh, he had an older bearing to him mm-hmm. at, at the same age that I was than I did. And he goes, I understand. I want you to play football. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to be like us. Yeah. Do what you got to do, man. Yeah. And I was like, but I want to hang out with you guys. I love you guys. You know? And he's right, like, right. No. Yeah. No. And I didn't expect that was the way the conversation was going to go, mm-hmm. but it, it was shit like that. And then, uh, you, you learn it wasn't just football. We did uh, 
we did fundraising for weights and then we did fundraising for for some of the team uniforms and stuff like that where we would go on a saturday or a sunday with our dads Mm -hmm. and the coaches and we would go cut firewood out in the out in the woods then bring it back, split it, and then deliver it to people's homes and stack it for them <laughs> for, for, for dirt-ass cheap, yeah, right? That's a, that's a, but we did it as a team, and right. it, was, it was not during school days, and right. it was, this is the type of shit you do as men. Right. And uh, they didn't say it's, it's, it's you know, man building or character building. It right. was, we're doing this for the team. We're doing this for together. the greater good. Right. So right. the coaches were there. Our families were there. We were all there. And that's the type of shit that we did. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then if there was a struggle, everybody helped that. Yeah. I, I was basically poor growing up. Uh, we did have a house, so we didn't live in an apartment. But uh, uh, it, my mom barely made the, the mortgage payment every... I mean, I remember she was telling me we're six months behind, but the bank's working with us. Right. Uh, and we didn't have the best of anything. Right. But we did have a black and white TV, you know, for a lot of it. And we had each other. And mom made sure we had food. I know that she went without mm-hmm. at different times. Mm-hmm. I know that we had to go live in shelters because dad was abusive and we're looking for her. And we lived in shelters yeah. for for a day, a week, two weeks. Um, so I know what it's like to to be in a dysfunctional family. But my mom tried to make it as much as possible. So a lot of my ethics were from her about what, how far will you go to take care of the people that you love? Right. I know how far to go. I know what people are capable of. Right. Because of what I went through. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so all, all of those reinforced. And I've been on the negative side. I went through a shitty divorce and I uh, fucked up, fucked up things there, especially with my daughter. And I regret that, and I wish I could go back and change it. Given the opportunity, I will fall on my knees, beg for forgiveness, and do whatever I can to rekindle that relationship. I'm just praying daily for the opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to create uh, different avenues. So one of these days, hopefully, that'll happen. Yeah, that's that's super important and powerful. I mean, honestly, um, you know, hearing your your past, it it shows, you know how you were shaped today um but by the same hand you um you you made some deliberate decisions to not go down the path that you could have yeah you know because that that path is the story of a lot of you know inmates that we dealt with yeah you know and and you you chose the other path um so before we jump kind of into our last segment of this let's go ahead and take a break and uh, we'll come back at it. All right. All right, Roy. We're back from the break. Um, this is going to be our third and final segment. Um, I kind of wanted to finish this up with, um, you know, fin- finish up encapsulating about the, you know, your, your upbringing. You brought up something on the break um, that you want to share about your dad. So I want you to kind of finish that up because I think that will help drive us into the next and, and last segment. Yeah. On the, on the break, I, I wanted to make sure that, uh, any picture I'm painting is a complete picture. So when it came to my dad, world war two vet, uh, depression era man who grew up, uh, dirt poor, literally dirt poor, 
Uh, favorite picture of him is barefoot, wearing nothing but a pair of overalls with a dark tan and, and just bleached out red hair in Oklahoma in the Depression. But he's got a smile on his face. Yeah. This is also the same guy that when he came back, like I said, struggled a lot. Uh, one of the things that I was able to break through a lot of boundaries when it comes to convicts is my old man was a convict. Mm-hmm. He had done time in three different states, all right, because of things in his life that led him into the system. Right. All right. Here in this state, uh, he had five convictions for DUIs. Jeez. Uh, alcohol was his, was his nemesis, mm-hmm. um, and it was not good to him. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he was still able to stay alive. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So I know what it was like to have a convict as a dad. I know what it was like to go to visit at a jail. Mm -hmm. I know what it was like to have, uh, felons as friends and or family. Yeah. Um, so I was able to break through a lot of boundaries with inmates because Mm -hmm. of that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I would share, Hey, look, man, Hey, I had to make choices. You had to make choices. People influenced me. And ultimately this is the decision I made. You made yours, but we're not done. Yeah. We make decisions every single moment, every single day until we die. Mm -hmm. You can still make different ones. Right. I still have to make mine. Hell, you never know. I might end up on your side at some point and neither of us knows until that time occurs. Right. So, but I just wanted to let, well, that's, that's, it's super interesting because as you're saying, um, you know, a lot of people could have stopped where you were at when you retired. Um, and you know, left and, you know, pulled out the, the 18 pack and, you know, sat around and watched Fox news all day and drank beer or, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, to date you have yet to, to do that. Um, you are moving forward. You're still making those decisions. And even though a lot of people would consider, you know, your decisions to be, you know, quote unquote done, you're not allowing that to be the end. In fact, you're diving more into the healing. You're diving more into, you know, trying to better yourself, better your kids' life, better your grandkids' life. So you're, you're really trying to make a a generational change and an impact in your family tree and in, in your, your legacy, which is a huge thing because, you know, I look at that as, you know, a, a guy in his thirties as like, man, I, I feel like sometimes like, you know, my life's almost over. Like, you know, like I'm, I don't have much life to live or, you know, the highlights of my life are over or whatever. Um, and so that's, it's, it's just encouraging to realize that I could be, you know, in my later years and still be making those decisions and still trying to improve my position, still trying to improve myself. And it, it just brings us back to that. We're all human and we're all trying to, to better, you know, or should be trying to better ourselves and those around us and lift us up, which, which really leads us into the next portion of, of society and, and, and men of today. Um, you know, you and I have talked multiple different times about where we're at as a society. Um, frankly, as a, as a dad, you know, with, with the younger kids scares me. Um, you as, as a dad and a grandfather, you know, with a generation up and coming, you know, you and I have talked the same thing. It scares you and seeing, you know, the way 
society is moving. Um, so I just kind of want to get some of your thoughts on how you see society moving, how you see mainly men, but men and women, you know, how the roles are changing and, and what, what things you see that, you know, might be good out of that or what things you see might be bad out of that. Okay. I got you, Mike. So here's where I'm at. I used to be part of the silent majority. Mm -hmm. I used to believe that as a strong male, uh, American male, not just a male, but an American male, uh, I let my actions do my talking. Mm -hmm. And then they're growing up. You learned there are things we don't talk about. Sure. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what was drilled into us. We don't talk about those things. Mm -hmm. And, and this is even back in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. where I learned it. Right. I, I, 60s, 70s, 80s. I learned that from my dad under from my mom. Um, and we are loyal. Mm -hmm. If we're, uh, if we're Baptist and we're Democrats, then we stay that way because right. this is the way we were brought up. This is the way we are. And that's the way that it is because we're loyal and we are consistent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we come hell or high water, that's the way we are. Right. <clears throat> and then as a man, you don't have to brag a lot. You don't have to talk a lot. And you don't have to do anything. You just raise your family, do, you know, do your job. Yeah. And that's, that's who you are. We right. go to work, we raise our family, uh, and then we die. What has happened that I've that I've personally been involved in is I have seen where there's been a necessity for change, but that the pendulum has turned into a steamroller and that comes with American men. Mm -hmm. Okay. American men have been out, have been made to be a bad guy and an excuse for why people are the way that they are. And now they're trying to use it and they have been for a while to excuse their actions of why that the way that they are mm -hmm. and to, unfortunately uh, we become silent majority because, well, you know, it's not my part. I shouldn't say anything. And, and right. that time is past. We have to go back to being nothing but men of action. We talk a little and we act a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm at now as a person who doesn't have to worry about what I say or do impacting my job because I did my job even to the detriment of being fired right. officially, right. but able to retire. Um, I can look toe to toe with anybody and say, I have a standard and I think it's a quality American standard. Okay. I want to keep America American. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where I'm at right now because I, I feel driven by my moral and ethical compass and by God. Okay. Yeah. Ask anybody. I don't go to a church. Haven't for a long time. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me what religion I am because it's, I believe in God. Yeah. Okay. I can find God in any major religion and they probably understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have more in common with most religions than any one specific religion. Right. Okay. I know that there are differences that I don't agree to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there are 21 virgins when I get to heaven. Right. Um, I don't think that I need to kill all of the people that don't believe in the religion that I believe in. Mm -hmm. Don't think so. 
and I shouldn't take over a country to make someone believe that. Right. Um, I do think that I am and would defend my faith and my family at the same level. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would be, I would, I'd go to physical blows over it. Right. Um, to keep my way of life. And that's where I, right now is I, the silent majority of people that I know are hardworking, uh, God fearing Americans and they don't want to, but they're being forced to take action. So I want them to make the decision like I did is I am going to do this because it's the right thing. I am going to speak out and say, I believe in the second amendment. I believe in using hands to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. I believe that acting out and rioting and destroying things is wrong and we should physically stop them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that teaching uh, a lot of the LGBTQ or sex indoctrination uh, at our schools, the way that they're doing it, and the majority of it, period, should be taken out and put back in the hands of the American family to do. No matter what culture you're from, that should be that. If you want to talk about the mechanics and the physical sciences of what a human is and the differences between them, go right ahead. But I think that the indoctrination and the way society is currently, uh, we need to take back what an American, strong American male is, And we need to show the definitions through actions, through raising our families, by being vocal, which means being intelligent and able to uh, withstand the onslaught from everybody that will want to attack us because we know that they will. Mm -hmm. And being able to not have arguments. I don't want to argue with you. I'd like to have a debate. Maybe you can change my mind. Maybe I can change yours. But you better bring your facts because I have mine. And I know that my way of life and my beliefs will help raise a strong American family. I don't have any sons. I have daughters. Okay. I have one daughter. I have three stepdaughters, but I have grandkids. I have son-in-laws. And I also have in-laws and I have relatives and they all support me. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have some differences of opinion about politics we have some differences of religion uh, about religion or certain uh, you know football teams we have differences yeah yeah but as a whole we support each other because we believe in the American society as a whole and that way of acting and that's where I'm at I am a god-fearing American male and I will not I will be unapologetic about it so let me ask you 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 brought up a good point because um you know, you, you're, you, you don't have any sons, um, as a father of three sons, uh, and a daughter, I, I find it interesting. You bring that up. I, I want to ask, is it just as important for you to be a role model and have your belief system being a father to daughters as you think it would be to be a father to sons? 100%. And why is that? Uh, because how I act, what I believe in, what they see me do day in, day out consistently mm-hmm. is what shapes their opinion towards other, all other men, okay. and especially the one that they uh, potentially want to be with for the future. Mm-hmm. So three of the daughters are married. 
and have kids and are still with those those spouses. Mm-hmm. One is in her mid-20s and not married yet. Mm-hmm. But we struggled as uh, as uh, to become a family and to get them to understand I'm not a bad guy. Yeah, I can be at, you know at different times, but sure. she now has a standard for what she wants. As she she developed her standard from how I interact with her mom mm-hmm. and them mm-hmm. and other people, the same as she learned from her her dad, her mm-hmm. biological dad who I fully support, want her to have a relationship with as much as possible and him to have a relationship with her because he and I get along. Right. I am not there to ruin anything for him. I want to support him 100% right. because he has a good heart and he wants to do the right thing. So, yes, so her standards are no felons. They have to have a job mm-hmm. and consistently go to it and they have to treat me and my family with respect. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a real high standard, but apparently <laughs> she's not having a lot of success, but I keep praying for her. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, I think that's, you know, an interesting segue into kind of today's society of men. Um, one of the things that I'm, you know, noticing dealing and talking with young men, um, men in their twenties, um, in their, their teens, um, all the way down to, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, there was a distinct shift. And I know every generation says, oh, well, you know, they just do things differently. And you're going to have those natural changes. But I, I think there was a distinct shift in COVID time mm-hmm. where we shifted from the standard of, you know, men, you go out, you, you graduate high school. Yeah. You, you know, get a job, you go to school, you get some type of, you know, whether it's college or trade school or something, you, you, you get some sort of formal training to start a career. Then you get a career, you know, and a career isn't driving for freaking Uber eats. Um, you know, it's, it's working in something that you can do for long term to support a family and then once you've done that then you go start trying to pursue you know women and trying to find a relationship there was a shift from that to where m- men in their early 20s have no comprehension of that they they think you know living with mom and dad is totally acceptable um not going to school is totally acceptable driving you know uh, you know working a, a dead end job is acceptable as long as i have enough money to you know pay for my video games, you know, go out to eat and, you know, buy whatever new phone I want to get next is, is acceptable. And it just seems like there's no motivation for men to, to move forward. And, and I'm really going to push hard on men in this portion because men, when, when men fail to act, the natural recourse is that women will act in their place, right? So it's if men aren't acting and women are having to act and having to step up and having to do things, it creates, in my opinion, um, a breeding ground for things like feminism to to flourish or for socialism or communism or any of the isms to, to kind of 
bloom and come forward. It's that failure on man's part to act, which causes that, um, you know, that, that ability for things to end up the way they are. Um, and I'll just, you know, again, just wanting to, you know, piggyback on what you're saying about being a good unapologetic American. Like that has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with belief system other than going back to what we talked about earlier, being a part of a team and doing something like you were saying with, with the wood splitting and cutting and stacking, you're doing it for the greater good of the team. So you're being a productive member of that team to better the team. Yeah. And there's, it's not bettering, it, it's bettering you, but the goal is to better the team and in turn you're bettering yourself. So looking at today's society with social media, with COVID and separation and, you know, telecommuting and, and everything else, we've done a really damn good job of segregating everybody and isolating everybody away from people to prevent us from interacting. Yeah. And, and I'm, it's, it's allowed for this to continue to breed. So I just, just kind of a, a, a thought, I want to hear your thoughts on that and, and see like what, what you think. <laughs> the, the, the old standard of how, uh, how we did as men has changed, whether we want to accept it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't care if you're, if your family wants to let you live at home, go ahead. If you don't want to get a job and you want to be into whatever you want, that's the American way. That's what we served in the military for is to protect that right. And you can say anything about it. We protected that right. Um, but what I find is the lack of a focused purpose of how to be a man mm-hmm. and that you need to find your purpose. Okay. So a lot of these guys are purposeless. They're just wandering because they don't have any strong American male to say, Hey, have you tried this? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you taking care of yourself? Why aren't you taking care of your family? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you taking care of, of the things that, we do at a, at a base minimum, treat each other well, believe in something and be able to stand up and defend it. Those are the things that we're lacking. And, uh, a lot of it is that, uh, the perception that it's wrong to be strong. It's wrong to be vocal about believing in strong ethical males. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I have seen that a, a small group has been allowed to and I appreciate them for it because for me, I'm going to use it as a roadmap, which is uh, the black community. They have been allowed to cultivate how to be a strong black male. And if you took away the term black and just a strong American male, mm-hmm. they have the roadmaps. They're, uh, they have the same core values that we're talking about right now. If you look it up, they're talking about y- you do the right thing. Yeah. You have purpose. You, your hygiene's good. You treat people with respect, but you don't take anybody's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. You need to be intelligent. You always need to grow mentally the same as you are physically. Mm -hmm. As long as you're capable to grow physically, you need to do it because it's a challenge because as a human, you have a limited amount of time in the surf. Right. And the only way to grow and get better is to challenge. So they're about the challenge, but they show them how to act 
as a decent human American male Mm -hmm. in an American society. You need to take care of yourself so that you can take care of your spouse, uh, even if you don't get married. Right. You can take care of your significant other, and you can take care of your children, and you need to be there for them because you need to set the example. And the only way for uh, the way that they've said, the only way we're going to change black society is to bring back strong black American men the way that they should be versus the way they are now. The government did a dishonor to all Americans when they said, we're only going to pay women that don't have a husband. Right. And we're going to benefit them if they have a bunch of kids, but don't have a father at home. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you money. We'll give you money to be ignorant. We'll give you money to have a bunch of kids. We'll give you money to stay on the dole. That's right. wrong. And these guys are trying to change it. I think they've got a great roadmap. Um, I would like to take the culture out of it for us and say, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't matter if your dad's a CEO. It doesn't matter if he's uh, uh, if he's poor right now. I'll bet you he wants to be a strong American male. Yeah. And we need to set the examples, and we need to pull pull people up and say, "Hey, look, I I, I see you failing here, or I think you could do some help there. Uh, let's work this out together." Yeah. And uh, that's what I'm doing with with the people that pop into my head, and uh, or some people that call me. Mm-hmm. And they ask for help or I just reach out and touch and they're like, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And we're growing that. I'm growing my own group to help primarily those that have been in corrections and are now looking at getting out yeah, um, or staying in and they just need help. They yeah. just need resources and they need a strong ma- American male to help them because they don't want to lose their job. They don't need anybody attached to the department and I can provide that. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to. So, uh, call me, text me, email me. I, I will talk with you. Uh, give me a day. I might be, I might be busy, but I'm not going to blow you off. Right. And, uh, I'm just, it's time to no longer be the silent, silent majority. We need to be a strong American majority, strong American male majority that isn't going to take this bullshit anymore. Yeah. And I think, um, <clears throat> Just kind of wrapping this up, um, a couple ideas that, you know, like first and foremost, I, like I want to say that I can attest not only on a personal level that you're walking the walk and, and doing what you're saying we need to do, um, but also on a professional level. I remember there were so many different instances where, um, you know, when we were both lieutenants together and I was day shift and you were swing shift. And so you'd come in and relieve me and I would just sit there and I would vent and I would just be like, this is, you know, this is driving me nuts. This is, you know, and you'd just be like, you know, you're, I, I want to preface this. You're one of two people in my life that call me Mikey. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, 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 and it's not out of, uh, like, I, I don't let anybody else ever call me that. And the other guy was somebody I worked with years ago, but, um, you know, it, I, I just remember you'd come in and be like, Mikey, what's going on today? Tell me, fill me in. And, and I would just vent for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. And then you'd be like, well, what are you doing to better the situation? How are you, you know, making things work better? What are you doing to grow? What are you doing to learn? What are you doing to change? 
And you wouldn't just jump straight to, you know, yeah, you know, screw the man above you. It's all his fault. You know, like I would get some from some of my other peers, but I always valued that, that you would be like, okay, and how can you better the situation? What can you do? So I would, I would just remember I'd sit there and I'd vent and then I'd be like, this son of a bitch, (laughs) like you're going to, you're going to push it back in my face. But then I would remember every single time on my drive home, I'd sit there and be like, yeah, Roy's 100% right. What can I do? Okay, I can do X, Y, and Z to better it. And and I have taken that and implemented that with other men that I mentor and other men that I talk to and been like, okay, yeah, your, your situation's crap. What can you do to better it? You know, take out all the variables of any anything anybody else can input. Um, and, I just, and I just remember, like, that gave me a drive and a hunger to to really better myself. And I remember I became an expert in, in policies. Um, I became, I, I began to educate myself. You know, I began to learn more and every opportunity I had to learn, I was trying to cram it in my brain. And, and that way I was armed, you know, in my mind mentally to be able to, to, to work through a situation. Um, I, I started physically training you know, working out, exercising, relieving that stress, getting that, you know, getting off the couch and not just, you know, crashing and, and, you know, vegging out to 10 hours of Netflix or whatever, but physically interacting and getting motivated and training. And then the spiritual portion, you know, really pushing into that, okay, I need to, you know, connect with God and I need to, you know, really try to build that mental toughness and fortitude and allow God to take out what I can't control, um, to, to make me a better individual and person, but to develop that, that mental toughness. Because when, when I I realized when I would give it to God, it would like, I'd be like, okay, cool. He wanted me to go through this. So that way it would make me stronger. So that way when the next wave came, I was even more strong, you know, I had more strength, but just really, encapsulating that idea of you know standing up and not being the silent majority you know at at the end of the day whether you're you know 12 or you're 80 as a male you have an obligation you know like you're saying to better yourself and continue to making those decisions and growing and learning and I just I just want to encourage men as a whole like if you start cleaning up your act there are other men out there and women and, you know, members of society that want to help you and they want to make a better country, a better world. And that starts with you as an individual, but then also standing up for what you believe in, you know, ingraining and encapsulating your, your code of ethics and your code of conduct and, and pushing that forward and living by that, you know, and it just truly makes everything better that way. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm no longer gonna allow the three percent of of American society to dictate how I should feel, mm-hmm. how I should act, what uh, what rights I should have. Yeah, I I can decide that. Yeah, and I know that the silent majority of of American men feel the same way. So. I'm off the couch. Yeah. Um, I'm on social media, but I'm really, the money is in the person to person contact. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'm trying to impact and improve the lives of every single man that I can yeah. uh, by being there, by uh, having them witness through actions mm-hmm. um, and supporting them when they make theirs. If they fuck up, they need to account for it. They need to learn from it and they need to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what's going to happen. We are human. We are imperfect, but we got to have each other's back. Yeah. And it's time, silent majority, get the fuck off the couch. Yeah. Let's let's go to work. Yeah. Ain't no bragging needed. Just let's go to work. Let's help each other and move it forward, take it back, and wear that American fly, flag proudly again. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, well, I think like honestly, I don't I don't have anything out of that. It's a pretty amazing way to end. Um I you know, do you have any final thoughts that you want to wrap up or, or comment or Mike and I are, are putting on this, this, uh, show. Thanks uh, to him allowing me to come in, uh, reach out to us. It, the thing is you, you, we tell you to look for resources. I know we're both putting ourselves out there, but do it. If you can't find us, uh, or you don't feel like you could trust us, then find one person. All right. Find one person that you trust reach out and say, I, I want to be a strong American male again. Let's do this. So make a phone call, uh, meet somebody for lunch. Uh, you see somebody that's a stranger, ask them, Hey, how do you do that? It doesn't have to be, you know, pointed. It can just be that simple, but get the ball rolling. Awesome. Well, I re- really appreciate you coming on and, um, thank you so much and look forward to hearing from you soon. All right, looking forward to it, Mike. All right, thanks.